I'm always confused by this weird desire some writers have to bring the Phantom into present day when the entire thing that makes the Phantom cool is he's a fucking 30s pulp character. It's like, if you're going to change the time period, give us fucking a future Phantom. That should be the obvious choice. Like, they tried doing that almost with Robin Hood recently. Like, they kept talking about how they're going to make it a future thing. Because Robin Hood set in the current day would suck. We've seen a thousand Robin Hoods in the past. That leaves the future. Because fuck it, sure, I'd watch that. Back to the Phantom, I wholeheartedly disagree that it can't work in the modern day, but... Pitch us, MB, pitch us! Unfortunately, the one story that managed to do a lot really good with that premise is about to be completely undone by the fact that Black Panther is coming out because the entire thing was that he had future jungle technology, and now that's going to just look like a ripoff. When, when would that stop anyone? If anything, it's more likely to happen. Look, it's Black Panther, but he's white. Actually, I could see there being a market for that. <laughs> oh, could you? This is like, oh, this is the darkest timeline here. What? What if, like, all the fucking internet douchebags got really into the Phantom as protest against Black Panther? Like they Pepe the Frogged him. Black Panther was a member of the Avengers, but he wasn't a defender of the Earth. <laughs> like honestly, I'm surprised. Like all the whiny man baby folk aren't all over pulp heroes. Like they're the epitome uh, of like super masculinity. Like oh, especially guys they... like John Carter and Doc Savage, who yeah. are just like a manifest destiny personified. Right, just big bulgy bronze dudes who get all the women and beat up all the foreigners. Like that seems like their bag. But and considering how badly the Shadow treats Margot Lane, like the Shadow should be like a poster child because he's just a rich white dude who constantly berates women, laughs about it, and then shoots people. Shoots like foreign people a lot. Yeah, but he is often fighting against Nazis, so they may take issue with that. Uh, they want a revisionist take where he just ignores them and beats up, like, people from Asia. Aha! I respect their viewpoints, though I don't condone them. <laughs> Who knows what presence waffles in the night? <laughs> also, I just realized, Doc Savage is the man of bronze. He's wearing brown face. <laughs> Here's Johnny! I'll be back. And you will know my name is the Lord! I'm walking here! I'm walking here! I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Groovy. Podcast Network was looking for the best of the best of the best to handle a new podcast about movies, madness, moxie, and the men in black. Instead, they got us, including Jamie, MB, and your host, Cody. Welcome to Box Office Pulp. You have no idea why we're here, do you? No, I really, really only set up this podcast so I could read out the opening, uh, what'd you call them, stanzas, lyrics, verses, of Men in Black from Will Smith. <clears throat> I, I just like your opening, like, the best of the best of the best, sir. Like you're Captain America or something. I mean, I, I do have the shirt for that. With honors. Well, no, you can just buy it regularly. You don't have to be honored. Cash, credit, check. Walmart doesn't really care. You can just buy their shirts. Oh, I work at a Walmart, and yeah, you can, you can just wear things out. Yeah, no honor. 
Okay, someone cue the flashy noise so we can start the show without talking about shirts. So we're here today to talk about the 1997 Barry Sonnenfeld classic, Men in Black. Now, this movie is really important to me because uh, I think all three, or maybe the first two, oh, let's forget about the third for a minute, of the Men in Black films came out July 4th weekend, which on the years these came out meant like Friday was my birthday. So as a birthday treat both years, I got to go see Men in Black in theaters, which was a huge deal because this came out in 97. I had just turned seven years old. My dad took me to a big PG-13 movie where characters said things like, damn. And, oh my god, it was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> there was something very magical about Men in Black for people of our specific generation because it was the dirtiest movie your parents would take you to go see. <laughs> Because there's, there's not a booby in it, no, no. fuck words. There's it's, not really much for sex at all. There's Like, it's fine for network television, yeah, but it's men in black. But they, they, like, make a point of trying to cut away from the violence or make it kind of slapsticky so it's not as bad. I mean, you still have a bug that essentially kills a man, skins him, and then wears his skin, which is nightmare-inducing for a child, especially one who doesn't like cockroaches or bugs. But it's done in such a bloodless way that you can, yeah, no, that's fine for kids. Like, a seven-year-old can watch that. It's bloodless, but at the same time, they do th have a shot where they throw up the lifeless, like, skin, and it's presented as a completed rubber suit, and then they just pull it, like, they, they get away with, like, these little, because it's weird, like, th there's a scene where they impale a dude through his neck, mm -hmm. but it's entirely bloodless. Yeah. Because, it, because you find out later, uh, spoiler alert for those who haven't seen the 1997 Men in Black, uh, that this is actually an alien using a human suit as a vessel. Or even when they kill humans, like when Edgar uh, kills the pest incinerator by putting his uh, depesterizer uh, down the guy's throat and murders him, the guy flops over immediately. Like, there's no gasping, there's no struggling, he's just instantly dead <laughs> from this. And it's as if that pierced his heart. Yeah, the director's commentary, they talked about that. Like, we had to do it that way. That's the only way we could get it by the ratings board. And the studio came and like, yeah, that's how you have to do it. This has to be kind of a comic flop over pratfall. That's the only way we're going to allow this to happen on screen. So they knew the whole time they could get away with violence if they kind of trivialized it and they didn't do anything graphic. Well, that's well, there's, the there's an entire... I mean, there's an entire scene or an entire setup where the entire punch of one scene is that Tommy Lee Jones comes in and shoots Tony Shalhoub's head off. And then the head graphically go grows back. Yeah, that was the uh, Evil Dead 2 situation. Like, they can do graphic exploding heads as long as there's no red fluid. Yeah, yeah, because it's green fluid. Yeah, it's, fine. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> Literally the rationale, they're like, yeah, the studio doesn't care. You can do it if you make it, like, blue or, you know, violent green. That's fine. Like, there's a dude who, like, in the first ten minutes of this movie, jumps to his death. We don't actually see him hit the ground, but they come away, like, right, like, the second before. Like, you see the stuntman literally falling, and it's it's kind of incredible, because it's, like, it's, it's that 90s thing of, like, really wanting to push the envelope, but also not pushing the envelope at all. Well, that was the brilliant thing that 90s movies realized. Like, I kind of feel like this was something that they learned from the video nasty guys of the 80s, and that was kind of uh, popularized in the mainstream with The Mask. This idea that if you make horrifying violence just cartoony enough, 
then not only does that not offend anybody, but you kind of make it more disturbing. It's so funny that you bring up the mask in regards to this movie, because, well, a big thing, a really crucial, obvious thing that nobody really thinks of, uh, myself included, for the longest time, when they think of this movie, and specifically think of this as a movie series, they don't think of the fact that this, like The Mask, was based on what was originally an obscure comic book. This was based on a comic book whose company was so obscure, it was bought out by Malibu. Oh, I always thought they were Malibu. Oh, well, no, no. Aerosol Comics was actually the original imprint that the original miniseries was printed under. This was originally a miniseries by Lowell Cunningham and Sandy Carruthers, and it was just a three-issue base miniseries that came out in 1990. And Aerosol was bought because, I mean, Aerosol was kind of just low, 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 low tier as far as uh, imprint goes, but Malibu bought them. And then for the movie, and this, this blew my mind because we're, we're approaching the release of the newest Marvel movie. This movie is credited based on a Marvel comic book because Marvel bought the rights to men in black right before this movie came out. (laughs) So technically speaking, going back to the entirety of the history of comic books and film this was the first major Marvel movie to come out in theaters, aside from Howard the Duck. When was Blade? Blade major. was a year later. Because uh. there's something very important uh, context-wise that I want to bring up about this movie. And that's that Men in Black came out the same year as Batman and Robin, just one month afterward. <laughs> and this meant two very important things. One Batman and Robin teamed up with Spawn and Steel that year to kill audiences' enthusiasm for big-budget, pop-culture-feeding superhero movies, which wouldn't really come back in earnest until Spider-Man in 2002. And even that was only after like smaller hits like Blade and X-Men slowly built people's trust back up. Two, Batman and Robin was the last nail in the coffin for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like, his next two movies were End of Days and The Sixth Day. Like, America was ready to embrace every man, action heroes again. Like, they they were done with superheroes for right now. They they wanted to see somebody like Will Smith lead a series. And Will Smith had just proven himself one year earlier with Independence Day. And this kind of solidified it. Like, the one-two punch of Independence Day and Men in Black not only gave Will Smith legs, it kind of ushered in a new era for pop culture movies. I mean, we I don't think we would have The Matrix with lanky-ass Keanu Reeves being an action god if you know people weren't rooting for Will Smith already. Oh, for Will sure. Smith. And that's kind of amazing, because Will Smith was really kind of just cast in the most lackadaisical way, where I believe it was Son and Phil's wife who was just like, I'm a really big fan of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Can we just cast Will Smith as this character? Because he wasn't the original choice for Jay. Jay in the comic books is just a, like, it's fascinating reading the actual comic book because it is not, it is barely anything like the actual movie. The movie creates its own universe, practically. The, the second issue of the comic book is more or less what the story of the movie is, but... Yeah, the Men in Black mythology is based on issue 
two of Men in Black. The rest of them are irrelevant. Also, uh, it, this is an adorable story from the director's commentary, and it might be kind of apocryphal, but I like telling it anyways. Apparently, the way Barry Sonnenfeld handles movies is he gets a copy of the script for himself and a copy of the script for his wife. They sit in bed at night, each with their own copies of the script, and they read it at the same time. So they had copies of Men in Black, they both finished it, and then they turned to each other, and then they gave their casting the choices. So his wife is like, Will Smith, and he said, Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> That's how the movie was cast. To be fair, Will Smith was the second guy they went to. His original pick was David Schwimmer. Oof. Can you just imagine Ross jumping onto a tram? Oh, it's just raining white people in New York, isn't it? Bye. The song at the end would have been terrible. <laughs> but I still want to see that. Well, the difference is between you and me, I make this look good. The whole point I was trying to make whenever I brought that up, though, was sorry, that... sorry, I have a laugh track from Friends stuck in my head now. <laughs> the whole point I was trying to make when I brought that up earlier was that the, the, the comic books are very, very strange to read because the characterizations of J and K in the actual comic book are complete 180 from how they're presented in the movies because... The movies are very much a take off on the kind of persona of the actors playing them. It's the no-nonsense veteran played by Tommy Lee Jones with the rookie who is street smart and doesn't doesn't really like authority with Will Smith. And in the comic book, Jay is the straight man. He's the guy who really has, is no-nonsense about all of this and just kind of is a stick in the mud. And it's just kind of there not really getting any of this stuff because it's just so far beyond him. And, and he's just like, he's our audience avatar in a weird way. What I find even more fascinating is that Kay is an unhinged psychopath. Yeah, the plot of the first issue is Kay kidnaps Jay and forces him to become men in black. After violently gunning down a Mexican drug cartel... A drug cartel which is pushing this new drug called Berserk, a drug which falls into the hands of a death cult, which then wants to use this drug to commit human, like, have human ritualistic sacrifice through death battles with crazed drug-fueled people. And yeah, nothing supernatural happens in the first issue of this comic. Yeah, nothing in the first issue, but by issue three, they're fighting demons. Yeah, that's the biggest difference between these two properties. Comic book men in black just fight a new thing every issue. In issue two, like, even though it is based on the alien subplot, and even that has its very, 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 very vast differences, not the least of which is that the aliens are nonviolent. They're just there to collect uh, uh, an artifact that they have to present for a scavenger hunt. And that's kind of the entire joke of the issue. But the second issue opens with K and J having a karate session <laughs> where they practice their jujitsu on one another. And then Jay gets fed up because he keeps be- being beat up by by K. So he decides that he's going to leave the Men in Black Institute, walks out, goes into a room. There's unicorns. And he goes through several other rooms that are just varying in their weirdness and walks back and he's back in the dojo where Kay is just smirking to himself because 
he's just walked through the entire facility and and there's there's no there's no getting around that. Kay is um when I say he's a psychopath, like he's literally just like he's kind of evil. Oh, the men in black in the comic are evil. They're an Illuminati organization that's trying to control the world. And Jay is desperately trying to escape at every turn. And Kay, it's a horror story. I love that they took that and like, let's let's put the money here. This is where our franchise will be. Yeah, I don't understand this at all. Well, Sonnenfeld did say when he got brought on board, his, his first thing was basically to strip the script of more of the comic elements and make it his own. So we really have him to thank for saving this project. Oh, it is very much like the, the movie creates not only its own lore, but it distinguishes and defines a tone for this that is completely of itself. Like the, the men in black really can be called men in black in name only. And I say that in the best possible way, because the version of the men in black that are created for the movie are a thing that, that can work cinematically. Like, like they're alien hunters. They're, they're alien regulators where aliens live on earth and, live mostly mundane lives and they they're essentially there to just be like the dea agents or just do border patrol but between space and earth as opposed to like it's kind of fitting that the beginning of this movie is uh border patrol because this is just kind of the barrier between those two worlds nothing like that is in the comic like the the aliens that are featured in the second issue of the comic they're a one-off, and there's no mention of, like, alien... Well, like, there's a little bit of, like, mythology where, like, the day the Earth stood still is apparently a documentary. Well, remember, space invaders actually happened. We were all fighting a proxy war with our arcade machines. And the, and the treaty that's mentioned in the movie is mentioned in the comic, but it has no bearing, because in the movie, it actually has a purpose, because aliens are actual citizens. They're actually... On Earth, I mean, they're ingrained into our society, and they're actually there to serve a purpose narratively, and and that's the entire point of the movie. That's the entire point of the franchise is that these are alien busters, and it's and it's weird because it's like to compare it to the comic, like the mask is such a drastic departure from its comic book source because the mask movie is a vehicle for Jim Carrey to essentially live out all of his fantasies of being a, a cartoon, a Tex Avery cartoon. The comic book for The Mask is an ultra-violent, nihilistic fantasy that is so unrelenting in its gore that it would make Frank Miller blush. See, that's what I love about uh, when certain fans complain about how so many comic book adaptations aren't faithful enough to the source material. Some of the best comic book movies we have ever got wiped their ass with the comics. I feel like that's what video games need. Like, eh, just maybe just take the title of the game and just forget most of the game stuff. And maybe one of these days we'll get a good movie out of that. That's what they're doing now, Cody. That's how we got Assassin's Creed. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, they, the Super Mario movie was so authentic to the video game. <laughs> it was like watching so, uh, Let's Play. Oh, I remember that time that I played Super Mario Brothers 2 and... Digital Dennis Hopper did the dinosaur walk and talked about how he was going to get the plumbers while also asking where his pizza is. I love the harmonica level. Like it's it's the creme de la creme of video game design. Like there's never been a stealth mission that has been better than the harmonica level with the Goombas. 
And let's not forget that classic, classic level in Super Mario 64 where you have to trust the fungus. Yet, the mattress chase in that movie would later be created by the games, and that fascinates me. (laughs) But I I have two things to add to what you were saying earlier, MB. One, as far as the, the Men in Black base goes in the comics, I love the implication that at some point the Men in Black decided that unicorns had to be stopped and contained. Have you seen Cabin in the Woods? They're dangerous. <laughs> Two, Sonnenfeld excised all that stuff from the script. Tommy Lee Jones made him put some of it back in. Because he initially turned down the movie because it wasn't enough like the comic. This is Tommy Lee Jones. Just for context, this is a Tommy Lee Jones that, in a Batman movie made two years prior, decided that Two-Face was stupid, so he was going to just play the Joker. To be fair, Men in Black is much more suited towards his taste comic book-wise. Yeah, I think Tommy Lee Jones might actually believe in aliens. I I don't know. I just imagine him leaping through that comic being like, yeah, I figured it was something like this. I will say on on the DVD, there's a commentary track with Sonfeld and Tommy Lee Jones, and I had to turn it off because in the first minute when that CGI dragonfly comes up to the screen, Tommy Lee Jones goes, how did you do that? That's not, is that a real thing? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, come on, man. I'm done here. You can just explain it's a CGI effect. We can all be happy. Well, that's actually kind of something about this movie that I never noticed before because just kind of a brief history. My brief history with this movie is that I didn't watch it until it came out on video in 98. And um, I watched it pretty much on repeat because it was one of the only movies I had at, like, I would spend my weekends with my dad. And it was one of the only movies that I had that was age appropriate and also just interesting to me because it was just he had a lot of his movies. And then I would I just like bring over some of mine. And Men in Black was one of the only ones that I would have on rotation. So I would watch this just kind of constantly, and I had watched it many times as a kid, and then a couple times as a teenager. I hadn't really watched it since I was a teenager, so watching it for this, I was really struck by how I didn't realize how heavily this leans into using CGI and CGI creatures in the way that we are used to having them be used now, because... Jurassic Park obviously was like the the big movie that broke ahead and and made CGI and computer generated effects a real big thing and and you you have other predecessors to that too but Men in Black uses CGI creatures the way that I think modern movies would later go on to use them in the first really major way like yeah. like I never realized how lenient it was on that and. To its credit, it does a really great job, even now. Like, yeah, that blew my mind rewatching it the other day. That CGI holds up. No CGI from the 90s holds up, but this holds up. Uh, I mean, it, it was weird for me going back to Men in Black, because I watched 1, 2, and 3 in a marathon over the weekend, and it's hilarious watching the quality of the CGI improve with the age. You know, by the time you get to 3, that was only a few years ago, so it's all pretty stable. Two, like, most of the tentacles look pretty crummy, but by and large it's fine. And one, like, they're very ambitious, and some of it came out pretty cool. You can tell it's CGI, but damn, they were trying to do so much, it's not surprising that some of it just falls flat. I mean, you can, it's night and day difference between the Mikey in a suit and the Mikey CGI, but 
honestly, I don't care. It's still fine. It's not like I'm going to have to stop the watch, stop watching the movie because all of a sudden you CGI for three frames. I think what's important is it's well designed CGI, which is a detail that gets overlooked a lot. I mean, why do the Star Wars prequels look like shit? It's not because the CGI is bad. It's because everything is so poorly designed. It's not designed to blend in with anything. Yeah, the composition's weird. It feels very flat, even though there's like weird giant models sometimes being photographed and thrown back there. But this is Rick Baker doing these designs. So whether it's in makeup or in computer-generated effects, it all blends so well. Well, this was an ILM. Like, this was ILM going in after Rick Baker had already done the, the big creature effects and going in and fixing and really adding a lot to sequences that they had to go in and, like, spend a good amount of money to actually improve upon sequences that Sonnenfeld wasn't really happy with because Sonnenfeld, like, you were even talking earlier before we started the episode, like, Sonnenfeld didn't want to do the original ending that was already shot in film because it didn't match with the action or the, the tone that he had already set with the, the rest of the movie. So he had to shoot an entire alternate sequence, which is pretty action heavy. Like this, the, the end of this movie, this is a giant alien bug, like wrecking stuff and like, like a spaceship explodes and, this movie just does a lot of great things with not only just practical technology, but digital technology as well. And it has such a fine balance between the two because there's such a close connection between what Rick Baker did and what ILM did. And it's just kind of it's it's weird because it's like there's just such a you're used to studios not really having that much communications with the teams that are actually working on the movies themselves. And you can tell that within the final product is it's a team that comes in and they have their own vision and they kind of do their own vision. And then a studio comes in and tells them to do something different. And then they have to change last minute. It's all this convoluted mess that leads to stuff that doesn't look nearly as well polished. Or sometimes you have a movie like justice league where Steppenwolf looks like a PS2 video game because they had to rush it in at the last minute. But this is such a well-oiled machine of just a team going in from the beginning, knowing what they were going to do and pulling it off. And it's so it's really cool to see something like that and done in 1997, because, I mean, Men in Black is heavily reliant on creature effects for this. I mean, it it's not really monster effects. It's just more creature effects because aliens are just kind of they're They're supposed to be it there in everyday life. They're supposed to be something that you encounter just on the street, but you're not supposed to know about like the, these guys are the only ones that know about this, this sect of, of species. Like, like there's an alien birth in this movie. It's, it's just kind of on the side of the road. And, and that's just something that, is captured very well where there's this line between the big spectacle and just the mundane world. And one of the brilliant things that Sonnenfeld contributed to the whole concept was the idea that this takes place in New York because only in New York would you get this idea that people could just run around and act weird and you wouldn't think twice about it because it's New York. <laughs> I, I, I'm fascinated by the fact that this movie was originally supposed to take place underground. 
Like they were just not going to go to New York or anything. They were we were just going to hang out in the the MIB base. It says a lot about like the comic too. Like and and there's going to be a lot of comparison to the comic because it's just so fascinating how different they are. But I'll, the scene of the alien crashing on the farm. The farm is pretty much what you would expect out of the comic in terms of a location because they they kind of go just low just. Out in the middle of New Mexico is essentially where all of that is based. And the only scene in the movie are the scenes on the farm that are just kind of based in a low tech environment. Otherwise, it's just it's to inner city New York. Uh, they, they build on the idea that, uh, you know, the spaceships are right there in the, the architecture and and that, you know, celebrities like Dennis Rodman is an alien, which I believe. Uh, there's so many interesting things that they just say, yeah, like this comic is fine, but let's do something to actually make a world out of this. Well, to go back on what you were saying earlier about the original ending to the movie, the original ending was pretty much just the ending of issue two of Men in Black. Like They were just going to talk to the bug and then he was going to go home. And Rick Baker spent eight months building an animatronic cockroach for that conversation, which began a long, sad history of people putting CGI over things Rick Baker made. Although in this case, it's probably for the best because the end. Oh, it's definitely for the way best. Way better this way. It's you know the Jaws of the book versus Jaws of the movie ending. And let's let's not pretend though that Rick Baker's stuff was not highlighted in this series. Uh, it's such relief that it was made during the tipping point where CGI was good, but not good enough where you could do it all in a computer. So the alien designs and the practical puppets doing them are so good. I, I love what they did with things like the worm guys, or some of the background aliens walking around. Mikey is like one of my favorite alien designs ever. I, I love what Baker did with this stuff, and it's so memorable. Going back to what you said about Steppenwolf, he's just a CGI blob. If I had to pick him up from a police lineup, I could only do it by the fact that he's like 10 feet taller than normal people. Uh, and he'd also look kind of weirdly textured. This movie, all the aliens really stand out. It doesn't matter how many years have gone by. All the aliens are very unique, and it's so cool. You don't get that kind of design these days, it feels like. A lot of stuff is just kind of blends in. And the entire reason that each of those designs are so unique is because Barry Sonnenfeld and Steven Spielberg, who is a producer on this movie... Drove Rick Baker to the point of insanity with going back and forth with notes on each design because he would get notes from Spielberg that would say, I really like the body on this one, but I don't like the head. And then he would get one from Sonnenfeld that says, I really like the head, but I don't like the body. And they would both say, can you just combine these two? And Baker would just like start throwing things because he's like, that doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. It really sheds some light on why Rick Baker eventually rage quit the industry. <laughs> like you mentioned the worm guys. It trips me out every time I watch this movie. The worm guys are on screen for 20 seconds. Yeah. They're worm the most guys. memorable thing in this movie. Yeah, that's the thing. They're that well designed. They're my favorite thing. Like nothing in this movie stands out. It like I hadn't watched this movie in at least 10 years, maybe more. I still remember. Like I, I remember, like I remember those characters. They're embedded in my mind more than the pug, and the pug talks. Everybody, everybody, everybody knows where they were the first time they saw the Archelian Prince gasp his last sight of that head. 
And it really, the giant cockroach monster, as someone who is afraid of bugs, damn, that was a cool villain. And, and again, it's a perfect example of making something just cartoony enough, because he has those giant Bugs Bunny eyes and that grin. And the fact that he has a face that emotes makes it terrifying. Also, That's so the cool. suit is, uh, oh god, D'Onofrio does such a good job making that such an out-of-place, freaky character. Just the physical way he sells that herky-jerky bug-in-a-man movement is fantastic. Uh, that's one of the most underrated supervillain performances in movie history. Like, I can't believe we didn't realize what a gift D'Onofrio was back then. Because he went like Daniel Day-Lewis with that thing. Like, he studied the insect kingdom. He put himself in braces so he could only move insect-like. And just the way he talks, too. That weird slurred... Is that better? It just, it's fantastic. It's so good. This movie doesn't have to sell you on the fact that that's a cockroach wearing someone's skin. Because D'Onofrio lets you know that every second he's on screen. Like, watching that for the first time as a kid, like, I just, there was no suspension of disbelief. That's just what I was looking at. That is a cockroach, man. Like, there's a scene specifically where... It's right after he uh, kills the, the alien prince and, and his associate. Like, and he, he makes a scene and, and bursts his way out of the restaurant and like pushes the guy aside. The way D'Onofrio is holding his back as if he doesn't actually have a spine and then extends his hand out as if to tell like a, a, a passerby who like looks at him weird that everything's all right. He's just having an episode. <laughs> And the way that his, like, shoulders are twisted, like, there is so much going on with that performance and so much going on with that just body language and chemistry. It, it just, everything about that is just masterful. And and, and he has a bug mobile. <laughs> this movie establishes Edgar as a supervillain more than some Marvel movies do with their villains. Like, he he's iconic. He takes his volcano layer with him. And there's something so deeply satisfying on a storytelling level that what ultimately defeats that character is out-crazying him. And it's done by Kay, the most calm man in the universe. Out-crazying him, but also the most 90s thing in the world, which is Will Smith looks to a garbage bin full of cockroaches gets an idea and stomps on one. Edgar is climbing like he's at the top of this thing and he's nearly there. He stops as if he heard the crunch and then turns back and just the, the more Smith like, like it's out of a cartoon, the more Smith crunches down on these things while insinuating that each one is a family member he just keeps getting angrier and angrier. And it's just such a great fever pitch moment for a comedy because it's just like, it's this hideous bug thing. And then Will Smith being cocky towards it. And then he explodes. And that's based on established behavior. It's not just, well, they won because they, they had a special gun that killed them. I thought you were going to say that was based on established science. And I'm like, mm, I'm not sure. <laughs> But one of my favorite behind-the-scenes stories was about the cockroaches and just the, the fact that there are Madagascar hissing cockroaches that they used by the dumpster. 
which are not native to the United States. So they had to be counted after each take, you know, make sure that they didn't lose any. And they're cockroaches, so that's kind of their thing. They, they want to scurry away and hide. However, the movie is also being watched by the Humane Society to make sure they don't kill any insects. So after each day of filming is done, they have to collect all the bugs and count them to make sure they're still there. And they're not allowed to hurt any of the bugs or kill any of the bugs. If they're missing any of the bugs, the roach handlers would have to come in and search the entire set until they find the missing bug. However, if, like, enough hours went by, they could just call it a day, and they would bring in fumigators, and they would make sure none of the bugs got out. <laughs> so they weren't allowed to kill any of the bugs until they were allowed to kill the bugs later in the day. <laughs> it's so 90s because, like, everything's based on union rules. <laughs> and Rick Baker was having none of this. Uh, a big part of what makes this movie work, too, is just the dichotomy between Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, just in terms of how they work specifically as comedy characters is kind of fascinating because you know it's the classic buddy cop thing of two guys who really shouldn't logically get along and are diametric opposites in every way but end up finding common ground except at no point does it seem as though k actually dislikes jay at any point and yeah that's something that's so fascinating like the first act establishes no he thinks jay is awesome and that colors every other interaction after that. Like he's and and also it, it does a great job of really setting up way before you ever learn this that Kay is training Jay to be his replacement, not a partner, which is such a big reveal in the last part of this movie because it's so subtly done too. Like there's only one scene where Kay even remotely establishes the idea that he wants to leave the organization, which is the scene where he looks up his wife. As I noted while watching the movie, the first recorded instance of Facebook stalking. (laughs) That's all he's doing. He's just looking up an ex-girlfriend on Facebook. On Google Earth. Like, this, this movie predicted Google Earth in a weird way. But, like, it's so well done in just the way that it's a brisk movie. It's a it's a movie that flies by scene to scene to scene. Like twenty minutes into the movie, we've already gotten the the premise, we've already gotten the character setups, we've already gotten the character interactions, and everything is going a mile a mile a minute. But what's so great about this is that everything is still given time. It's still given time within a very quickly paced setting in a quickly action-based setting where like an action beat happens like maybe every 10 minutes and a comedy beat happens within within that but so much of this is predicated on just character building between these two leads and you know you have these other characters like you have zed you have like a couple other like little ancillary characters and then you occasionally have a scene of edgar being weird but like it's amazing that this movie isn't two hours Yeah, like, so much of this just feels like a character-driven movie, despite the fact that it's just such a, it's a breezy sit. It's it's literally 98 minutes, and it it feels quicker than that. It feels like a a television pilot, almost. And there's no fat in this movie whatsoever. It's kind of perfect. Yeah, it's it's one of those movies that just, it has a mission statement, and it exceeds at the mission statement to... A ridiculous amount, because, like, this, again, we cannot stress this enough, this is based on a comic book that has nothing to do with what is actually in the movie. Even worse, though, because it executes all of this so well and closes up the arcs and everything feeds together so well, 
it sets up a terrible, terrible sequel. Okay, I'm fascinated by this because Men in Black 2 is kind of lost to the sands of time as far as the public consciousness goes. I, I don't think that's fair. I think Men in Black 2 needs to be remembered because it is the ultimate bad sequel. It does literally every single thing that a bad sequel can do. Like, it makes me wonder if they had like a series of check marks they were trying to cross. It's even weirder because it's not like it came out the next year. This is not a Son of Kong situation where like we need this out now to ride the wave. It was a couple years later before they got around to making the sequel. It, it, it's like you guys didn't have to do this. At this point, you could have just called it quits and moved on. Tommy Lee Jones, I'm sure, had other things to do. He had a, a country full of old men. <laughs> it makes, again, makes me wonder if it's not intentional, because like, what's one of the biggest mistakes a sequel can make? Take something that worked for five seconds and make it half the movie. Oh, you liked the worm guys for one scene in Men in Black? They're the third act. You liked Frank for one scene? He's the sidekick. Or Kay retiring and being basically brought right back in and resetting their arcs from the first film. Like, hey, one guy's really optimistic, and he's the rookie, and the other guy's the jaded, seen-it-all dude who has all the experience and skill. What if we do it again? Only this time they're both kind of jaded, so the whole straight man dynamic doesn't work anymore. That's something I wanted to bring up as far as Tommy Lee Jones goes. Something that really struck me during this watch, which is, I'm curious if you'll agree, is this not the most joyous Tommy Lee Jones performance ever? Uh, the scene when he's singing along in the car as they're flying through the tunnel upside down, just wagging his head back and forth, he's having a good time. <laughs> like, it's something that's always been kind of lost on me up until watching it most recently, which is, Kay is a dude who is totally having a blast on his very last case before retirement. So you get the feeling that Kay is super tight-assed any other time, but he knows this is his last day on the job. So it makes all those little moments where he's like, you know, just just relax, Jay. Like it makes those moments kind of work in retrospect. See, the way, and I, I agree with you, but the way I've always interpreted the movie is, eh, not always, that's being pretentious. I was seven once when I saw it, so... <laughs> Uh, the way I interpret it now is is you have Will Smith, who is the new guy, and he needs... There's like a symbiosis going with the characters. He's new, but he needs to gain that experience and understand that he doesn't know everything. And he's paired up with a guy who really accepts that he doesn't know everything, but he, he's worn out and jaded by this world. And his redemption at the end of the film is deciding to open himself up again by leaving the organization and, you know, to be able to look up at the stars and see kind of a romance to it. So throughout the movie, I think he does cut loose a little bit more, and he's kind of feeding off of Will Smith's energy and loosening up. I think that's kind of the arc for this character. He's a tight ass who, you know, lets his tie loose at the end of the day, finally. Which is fascinating, because that's a character arc that happens between the, the prologue and the actual start of the movie. It, and you don't realize that until that last scene, like, oh, like, Kay went through an entire movie before we met him. Like, from recruiting Jay to where we're at now, that was all preordained. It's fun on a rewatch sense, because, I mean, you naturally follow Jay throughout the entire thing. It's his movie, 
And then you realize at the end, like, oh, there's an entire other art going on here I was not paying attention to. You could watch that movie and focus on K the entire time instead of J and get an entirely different experience out of the film, and one that's just as rewarding. It's a it's a really good sleight of hand that they pull, because by making Will Smith the, the protagonist, they really help hide the fact that Tommy Lee Jones is the connective tissue of this entire movie. He's the, he's the guy who's actually having, like, the big... Jay's arc is fairly simple. It's he learns that aliens exist and has to deal with that and mature and, and learn to live with that. And eventually he gets to that point where, yeah, he learns to live with it and and he manages to become a seasoned member of the Men in Black. Whereas Kate is going through something really existential almost and, and really like, like, it's almost like he's going through, like, the Logan period of his life. MB, don't give them ideas. Don't don't give them ideas to make an R-rated, hard, grimdark Men in Black. Okay. Coming soon. What would be the sad pop cover that they use for the trailer in the dark, gritty Men in Black? It would just be the Men in Black song. <laughs> like old Johnny Cash. I hurt myself today. No, 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 no. Getting jiggy with it. <laughs> but, th- but that's what... It- astounds me about this movie to this day is there's so many little touches, so many character moments, so much stuff they didn't necessarily have to put in. Like, there's a particular moment in this movie that fascinates me, and it's just a throwaway line that Tommy Lee Jones delivers right before a huge and attention-grabbing centerpiece joke, which is, Human thought is so primitive, it's looked upon as an infectious disease in some of the better galaxies. That is a brilliant, like, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy science fiction idea. That's like something Kurt Vonnegut would write. And that's just thrown out with no attention put to it. Like, that's how smart this movie is. Like, I love, I love his whole monologue to Jay about the fact that, you know, 300 years ago, human beings believed that the earth was flat. Can you imagine what you will know tomorrow? Like, I, I love his old elevator pitch to joining up with this organization after he's just found out that aliens exist, which by the way, Jay finds out that aliens exist like multiple times in this movie, <laughs> gets neuralized and then finds out again. And the ultimate clincher, the one that sticks is K just decides, uh, Okay, you don't want to join the organization. Fine. I'm going to make a cup of coffee. He opens the door, and there are the worm guys. So for all of this continuity, for the rest of Men in Black history, Will Smith's like introduction to the world of aliens is meeting the worm guys. And Kay is best friends with the worm guys. <laughs> and they – like – there's a, there's a whole like fever pitch running up to the end of this movie where all the aliens are trying to depart Earth because it's about to be uh, destroyed. And there's just this really amazing moment where Rip Torn is, is just kind of going around conducting business as usual and then gets really pissed and starts yelling because the worm guys are, are running away, too, and taking the smokes. So much character is established in those two 10-second interactions. Or even the characters that don't have a lot of lines or mention just still somehow have gravity and stick with us. That's two for a dollar, <laughs> sir. Like the guy who guards the guy who guards the hallway. That guy fascinated me. Like, what's his story? What does he do? Elevator. Just sits there and reads the paper. Jeeves is one scene. And like, 
you think of Tony Shalhoub as like this huge major player in the in the Men in Black series, largely because two tried to make him that, but he really only kind of has one scene in this movie. Even in two, he really only has one scene. It's just a longer scene. It's so weird because like you you think of this and it's like you think of him as a supporting player, but this doesn't really have that many supporting players. Like there's Rip Torn. I'm, I'm thinking about Logan and thinking about a, a version of Logan that takes place <laughs> in the universe. Rip Torn rolling around in a in a wheelchair, screaming about how the Taco Bell quesalupa is on sale right now. <laughs> like having psychic powers. Well, and then there's occasionally like a scene with Linda Fiorentino and who is just a character fully realized in a completely separate movie starring her. Yeah, like her and the cat have their own like subplot. See, th- see, that's the genius of like making a movie that's all about a giant, ever expanding universe with more characters in it than you could ever hope to meet, and then living up to that. Like this movie gives you so many tiny little pinpricks of what's inside of this universe that it makes the universe look gigantic. And again, talking about Men in Black 2, that's where they, one of the reasons they go wrong is, hey, let's take all those characters and have you spend more time with them again. So that the universe, instead of being gigantic, is just eight guys. It's Anakin creating C-3PO. Unfortunately, your alternative in that movie is Johnny Knoxville. Don't you mean Johnny Knoxville and Johnny Knoxville? The devil helping. Yeah, there, there's a lot of things that went wrong with two, and that's definitely one of them. Not necessarily Johnny Knoxville. He, he, he tries. But one of the things that really sticks out to me is in the first film, it works so well because it takes the mundane for the agents and mixes it with the real world who has to experience these fantastic things. So before people are neuralizing stuff, they're kind of like, what? Jay has all these experiences where he doesn't know what the hell is happening in case, like, eh, been there, done that. But it's it's grounded, so we get a sense of the fantastic while we're watching it. In 2, all of a sudden, Rip Torn is, like, up in the air, kung fu kicking people. Uh, it's just a cartoon. It's a cartoon. Like, alien fingers are going through people's noses and out their ears and eyes, but not killing them. And it's, it's, it's meant to be over-the-top cartoony fun, but it just doesn't quite hit the same notes as the first one, where part of the joke is... Wow, this is something that's freaky. In the second one, everything's freaky and no one cares. That's what something Lowell Cunningham said whenever he created the series, is any other comic would have these characters going to beautiful, weird locations. He just wanted to have weird stuff happen in the most boring settings, because that creates a unique aesthetic. So one thing that's kind of thrown me is... I feel like I can't help but look at this movie and think about how it's going to be portrayed in the future because earlier this month it was announced they're they're trying to reboot it. Uh, they have a release date of June 14th, 2019, so it's coming up fast. Just how different things have become. Like in, in my mind, the original Men in Black works because conspiracy nuts were kind of just thought as kooky, almost funny kind of characters, and the idea that they might be right about everything is itself a funny premise and joke. Yeah, there was a reason Conspiracy Theory came out that same summer. Yeah, whereas in the current climate, our president is a famous backer of the birther conspiracy movement. The idea that all of a sudden that they're right about everything it doesn't seem funny, it just seems depressing. And the idea of a reboot, or whatever you want to call it, maybe they'll do it like Jurassic World, where it's just different agents 
in in the same universe, leaving a door for Will Smith to come back for a cameo if he wants. I get concerned that maybe they downplay the comedy and they make it a dark, serious action film. Or things that worked 20 years ago don't work in this cycle. Like, I don't know if you can just repeat them and have them work the same way. Oh, no, you can't repeat them. I think the key to doing a Men in Black reboot, if they are actually going to fall through with that, because, I mean, they've, they've talked about doing Men in Black, like, meets 21 Jump Street and <laughs> all this, like, ridiculous stuff over the years. Like, I'm pretty sure that's not even the most ridiculous rumor that they've ever done with the series. But I would have watched it, though. I, I, I really think that the way to do it is double down on the crazy, which is go David Icke with it and say that he was right about everything. Like, yeah, everyone's a reptilian. Like, like everyone, like all this like weird stuff, like this weird out there stuff that literally nobody but Alex Jones would believe. And I almost have the men in black be this force that is trying to work with, like work with the conspiracy theorists on, on a level where they're trying to, make it seem ridiculous that this stuff is out there. And then it is in increasing danger of getting out there, like almost going darker with it, but making it more absurd. Like there, there's a way to do this that only a truly insane person could do. <laughs> and what I'm saying is I think this sequel needs to be written by the man who brought us the tick. <laughs> There's a lot of overlap between this and Ben Eklund's work. Yeah, I, I could see Eklund actually really pulling off a really cool like Men in Black reboot because that's that's the thing about this this movie too is that this movie has a screenwriter named Ed Solomon. It's not a name that I'm sure immediately conjures up images of like oh that dude like he, he's done this and and all this amazing stuff. But if you actually go back to his career, he he did. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, he went on to do an uncredited rewrite of the X-Men script. And to a much lesser extent, he started the Now You See Me movies. So this is a dude who took an insane premise and doing kind of out there stuff himself with like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and all that. Like, weirdly enough, he, I just looked this up. He actually did a pass at the Super Mario Brothers scripts. That's, that's, <laughs> that's amazing. I'm sure everybody got a shot at that. But, but this dude was already out there and doing fringe stuff and like doing this weird eclectic stuff that had like its own language to it almost where he was, he was just kind of like, he, he's a guy who, added so much with a weird sensibility that you would almost need a Ben Eklund to do a Men in Black reboot because you can't just have somebody just come in and just try to replicate that same tone. You would have to have someone that has their own weird ideas for this. This is because this movie is a weird movie in the best possible way. It's a movie that basks in its weirdness. And I, I really like that. Like that, the entire character of Edgar is proof positive of that. Just who would come up with that character? The secret bug man of Hollywood. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's the brilliance of the movie. I, I think that's why this spoke to us on such a primal level as children, because in a weird way, it's kind of the perfect kids movie. It has all of these insane premises, like you know, a cockroach wearing a farmer's skin that, only a 10-year-old would come up with. And it has that 
childhood obsession with grossness that like even the sequels didn't really want to come anywhere near like this is a disgusting grimy movie in a way that only movies made before the 2000s were really allowed to be and it's it's fascinating because like this is also a movie where the big alien monsters immediate request upon gaining his human suit is sugar water just cause, just just because it's weird, just because it's out there and it's alien and it's just a thing to do, a thing that's just just bizarre enough to where it works, and and then he pulls his face back and and makes and makes a woman faint. Like it's just this off the wall humor that just works so well in tandem with you know the the back and forth between J and K and. And this universe that's kind of set up where everything is just kind of off kilter to ours as, as opposed to being this wildly different universe to ours. And it's just so like Jamie's right. A lot of what appeals to people about this movie is that it's kind of the ultimate kids movie in that it's just there to just do weird stuff for the sake of weird stuff. But it also has a point to all of it. It adds a layer to it. It adds an undercurrent to it where it all has a logic and it works and it, it's motivating characters. And it's also like building up the big thread of the bad guy. And it's working on a narrative front as well as just being there to be, you know, have gross out humor for kids while at the same time having cool alien stuff and action sequences. And like, it's just kind of a smorgasbord of, of just everything you would want as a seven year old, which was how we all experience this. So it's kind of perfect. I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that like this is a phenomenon I didn't really start tracking until the movie Evolution came out. Remember Evolution, guys? I do. I went to see that in theaters with a buddy. We were the only two people there opening weekend. It had a cartoon. It seems that every couple of years, like a couple of times a generation, studios try to recreate Ghostbusters. They try to recreate that generation-defining genre movie that is perfect as a comedy, perfect as an action movie. It's popular with kids. It's popular adults. That miracle genre movie. And we only get one of them a generation. 80s gave us Ghostbusters. 90s, we had Men in Black. And now we, I would say we have Guardians of the Galaxy as that sweet spot of action, comedy, sci-fi, weird. Yeah, but they tried real hard with R.I.P.D. <laughs> Again, there's always like seven of these floating around, and it takes somebody like a James Gunn or a Barry Sonnenfeld to capture that magic. And years later, I still can't believe this movie is real. Like, this got past a studio... And they just said, yep, this is the movie we're going to release. Like, it feels like somebody at some point in the production sort of said, hey, wait a minute. That's that's the kind of magic that's very difficult to recapture. Look, I just feel like uh, when they do this remake, instead of the men in black being good guys, it's going to be a Mission Impossible situation where it turns out they're actually the bad guys and the ages have to go so low and it's going to be that kind of shit. So I have no faith in any of the cool stuff from the past and care being translated into a product that works now because it'll be noted to death because it costs $300 million to make. My God, Men in Black. 
is too big to fail. I'm, I'm just imagining like one poor Sony executive buying out theaters and giving out tickets like, you have to watch it. Please love us. You like Jumanji too. Buy it or I'll die. We put it all on Venom. <laughs> <laughs> and scene. Honestly, I don't know if I could come up with anything better than we put it all on Venom being my dying words. Well, if you would like to listen to other Pulp Podcast Network shows, you can check us all out on pulppodcast.wordpress.com. We have our sister show, Graphic Novelism, as well as Supergirl Power Hour, Hercules vs. the Podcast, and Pulp Nightmare, in which we do semi-regular movie commentaries if you're looking for something even more jackassy than this. Ew. And you can check us out at Box Office Pulp on Twitter and on boxofficepulp.blogspot.com. We are also on Facebook. Yeah. But you don't have to check that out. It's fine. Twitter's cool. Anyways, that's a wrap. Get the hell out of here. And don't forget. Also, man, also, what a great sign of sequel decline when you get Nod Your Head compared to the original Men in Black song. Because <sighs> remember, that was like the first special feature ever. It was on the end of the VHS tape. If you watch past the credits, all oh, of a sudden yeah. they had the music video for Men in Black. Which blew my mind, like, there's stuff after the movie. I love how, with Wild Wild West, Will Smith killed the idea of the music video tie-in as a big deal. Have you watched the Wild Wild West video? Smith thinks that he's Michael Jackson. That video is like ten minutes long. And they frequently pause between verses to have action scenes. I mean, in his defense, he did manage to make a smash single out of the Men in Black song, which is hilarious because... <laughs> That is not a song that should have been popular. It's catchy, but it's just one of those weird cultural artifacts where it's like, hey, let's explain the plot of the movie through a song. I guess Barry Sonnenfeld was the king of that, because he did it for the Addams Family movies, too. Oh, yeah. That was a fucking pop culture phenomenon in the 90s, until killed by Wild Wild West, leading to the graveyard of that trend, Nod Your Head. God, I watched the, that as a trilogy yesterday morning, Men in Black... Wild Wild West, nod your head. That is the decline of Western civilization in three music videos. Uh, I'm on the Men in Black by Will Smith Genius.com page, which has all the lyrics for the song. Uh, it also has annotations for some of the lyrics in case you don't understand uh, a reference in the material. This one in particular is fascinating because some of the insights are fairly in-depth. For instance, the first line, intro, Coco, jumps to an annotation that talks about this. The hook vocals are a sly reference to the sample track, Patrice Russian's 1982 hit, Forget Me Not. Russian <sighs> sends her former lover flowers, Forget Me Not, with a frantic plea, sending you Forget Me Not, to help me to remember, baby please Forget Me Not, want you to remember. In the MIB hook, Coco turns this on its head. The MIB will use their neuralizer to ensure you forget you ever saw them. So that's like, that's a pretty hefty note. Like, oh, that's very educational. Uh, the next note. The men in black have that pen-looking thing that will wipe your memory when you look at it. And it's called a neuralizer. Uh, someone left a comment to mention that. <laughs> wow, I was predictive. It emits a white flash of light which erases people's memories of certain events. They use it on witnesses of alien activities after interviewing them to keep the existence of aliens and the MIB a secret. I love that Genius is so thorough that his users had to put in 19 references to neuralizers. <laughs> That's not quite an exaggeration. Every time there's a reference in this song to memory loss... Or flashes, someone posts a picture from Men in Black, a different still, and talks about neuralizers and how you will forget things. That's because they got neuralized. That's true. So you should put a comment on there. 
Also, please keep going. This is gold. A game of chess is like a sword fight. You must think first before you move. Here comes the men in black. It's the MIBs. Uh, here come the MIBs. Here come the men in black. They won't let you remember. No, no, no. The good guys dress in black. Remember that. Just in case we ever face to face and make contact. The title held by me, MIB, means what you think you saw, you did not see. So don't blink. The what was there is now gone. Black suit with the black ray bands on. Walk in shadow, move in silence. Guard against extraterrestrial violence. But yo, we ain't on no government list. We straight don't exist, no names, and no fingerprints. Saw something strange, watch your back. Cause you never quite know where the MIBs is at. Uh, and here come the men in black. Men in black. Galaxy Defenders. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Here come the men in black. Men in black. They won't let you remember. Won't let you remember. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, I don't actually know if that's the proper cadence for the uns, but we're gonna move over. From the deepest of the darkest of night, on the horizon, bright light enters sight tight. Camera zoom on the impending doom, but then, like boom, black suits fill the room up. With the quickness, talk with the witness, hypnotizer, neuralizer, vivid memories turn to fantasies. Ain't no MIBs, can I please do what we say? That's the way we kick it. You know I mean? Are you sure the line isn't you know I mean? Y A N A H. Capital I, there's no space in there, M-E-A-N. Cody, it was 1997 rap. You're right, I gotta get jiggy with it. I see my noisy cricket get wicked on ya. We're your first, last, and only line of defense against the worst scum of the universe, so don't fear us, cheer us. If you ever get near us, don't jeer us, we're the fearless. MIB's freezing up all the flack. What's that stand for? Men in Black. Uh, and the Men in Black. Uh, and the Men in Black. Let me see you just bounce it with me. Just bounce with me. Bounce with me. Just bounce it with me. Come on. Let me see you just slide with me. Just slide with me. Slide. 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 Just slide with me. Come on. Let me see you take a walk with me. Just walk it with me. Walk with me. Take a walk with me. Come on. And make your neck work. Now freeze. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Ha. Here come the men in black. Men in black. Galaxy Defenders. Ooh. 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 Here come the men in black. Men in black. They won't let you remember. Won't let you remember. Alright, check it. Let me tell you this in closing. I know we might seem imposing, but trust me, if we ever show in your section, believe me, it's for your own protection. Cause we see things that you need not see. And we be places that you need not be. So go with your life, forget that Roswell crap. Show love to the black suit, cause that's the men in that's the men in. Here come the men in black, men in black, galaxy defenders. Ooh ooh ooh. Here come the men in black, men in black. They won't let you remember. Won't let you remember. The hook again for the closing. Here come the men in black, men in black, galaxy defenders. Ooh ooh ooh. Here come the men in black, men in black. They won't let you remember. Won't let you remember. Cody, I just want to make it very clear to you guys and the folks at home. One of the only notes I wrote down for this episode was, all caps, make sure Cody sings the MIP song. Which leads to a final annotation. This is a reference to the use of the neuralizer, which allows the MIP to eliminate their memory. Good night, everybody.
man like that, he's gone. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. Oh, there's one proposed edit. I wonder what it is. Uh, comment. It's a de-neuralizer, not a neuralizer. Oh, God, there's 90 references to a neuralizer here, and they're right, it's a de-neuralizer. Oh, man, my head is all messed up. The real question is this. Are comic books good, or are they not good? We were really the most shocked people in the world when we discovered that we were these terrible people who were causing juvenile delinquency in America. He talked about a homoerotic relationship between Batman and Robin. He talked about the lesbian tendencies of Wonder Woman. It was preposterous. The Comics Magazine Association of America, Incorporated, has been formed in a code written. But the undesirable comic books haven't disappeared from the newsstands of this country. And the first thing they did was outlaw all the words horror weird every word that i had on any of my titles they sent the book back and said you can't publish this book do we think our children so evil so vicious so simple-minded what are we afraid of graphic novelism presents code disapproved a new miniseries coming 2018